Well, good morning. Go ahead, grab a seat. Glad you're here with us this morning. My name is Steve Fisher. I'm the pastor of Student Ministries here at Westgate. Thanks for joining us and worshiping with us. If you are new, welcome. Uh, super glad you are here. Would love to really get to meet you. And if you'd like, right outside these doors is our Welcome Center. And so we would love for you to come by. Uh, and just so we can introduce ourselves personally to you, answer any questions you have about what we do here at Westgate, the ministries go on, even give you a tour of the church, uh, whatever you'd like. would love to just meet you in that way. We also have our connection cards, which are in the back of the pew right there. Uh, it's a way we stay connected with you guys. If you have questions on there, you can write them down. If you have prayer requests, we go through those every week as a staff and elder and prayer team um, pray for you. And so we love when you write down your prayer requests and also like praises when you see God answer prayer. We'd love to see that um, as well. Um, you can hopefully grab your sermon notes on the way in. You can also do that through our app. Um, or if you're online, you can um, go online and grab them as well. So I want to tell you a little experience I had and then make a point with it. How many of you are big Costco people? You love... It's funny. First service, there was some. Second, you are definitely more of the Costco people. So you'll get this. You'll, get, you'll understand what I'm going to tell you in a second here. I went to Costco the other day. We had uh, our student ministry retreat. Needed to buy a whole bunch of food. I normally don't go there all the time because I just like to shop at one place, but I won't get into that. Anyways, we're at Costco, but I forgot. Costco does a whole lot of samples. See, you know what I'm talking about. And so as you go along, everybody's offering you like, hey, you want to try this? You want to try this? And then you eat it and you're like, I definitely want a thousand of those to store in my freezer. You know what I'm talking about? And so you get a little taste of it and you're realizing, hey, this is actually something I, I might want to buy. And, and maybe this is something that I want to eat and, you know, bring home. I think sometimes maybe God works the same way in us. That sometimes we don't know maybe something big that he has for us until we get maybe a little taste of it or a little experience of it. And when we get that taste or that experience for the first time, we see that, hey, maybe there was something in there maybe all along that God was working towards, and it starts to maybe fan into flame something that God wants to do in us and through us. And so one of the things we as a church over the next five years, as, as we look as Rob presented the vision for what our church is of deep roots into Christ and then also broad reach into our neighbors and the nations, we want to be a church that is sending out our people. We want to be a sending church, sending out pastors and missionaries. And one of the ways I think that we do that is by actually participating in it ourselves. That we actually not just always give money, but we need to do that. Not that we don't come to like um, uh, our Thanksgiving, international Thanksgiving dinner where the nations are coming to us. But sometimes we need to go. We need to go. And so... We've been working on creating a new partnership um, with, uh, well, you can go ahead and throw the Costa Rica um, slide up there. This summer, we're going to be sending a team to Costa Rica. It's going to be, hopefully, the first of many. Costa Rica, um, the reason we picked Costa Rica is that we have already an ongoing partnership um, 
with Rich and Elise Brown, and they do Inca Link. They've come here, and Inca Link is goal. Their vision is reach the three million youth of Latin America. And so we've already had this partnership with them. And so as we were talking with them and looking for a place that we can go, not just send others, but we ourselves can go, uh, we met uh, Jen and Jake Edwards. And they work specifically in Costa Rica. Um, and they are through Link and also through Envision, which is a, a, CM, a CMA arm of missions. And so we are going to be partnering with them um, and sending, this time, we're going to be sending 17 students and seven adults uh, to Costa Rica this summer in June uh, to be working with Jake and Jen, you'll see there, and their adopted son, Sunday. And we are going to be then serving in the capital city of Costa Rica. Well, there are ministries that they're doing. There's some pictures up there of them. They do um, English, different English schools. Uh, they do art uh, for the community. They run uh, VBS uh, they have a big basketball clinic that they do as well. And so all of these things that they're doing is outreach into the community. And what's really what we love as Jules and I get to sat and meet them and talk with them. The thing that I love is that they partner with the CMA National Church in Costa Rica. And so they run these ministries to invite them back already to a church that's there. And so when we get to go, we get to go and help as the kind of the outreach arm of the local church to reach the com their community. And so I'm excited that while this is, the first is a student trip, that this is not just going to be a student trip moving forward, that there's going to be opportunities for you to go. Uh, some of our partners that are in Germany and Mongolia and Ukraine, at times those trips have to be very small and concise. And so we are looking for a place that we can send more of us, send you uh, to go. And so we'll be looking to send people that are young adults, adults, families. Imagine going and having an experience with your student or kid with you as you serve overseas and, and listen to the call of God in your life as a family. Um, our seniors, this is going to be opened as we go forward in the next bunch of years to not just have other people go, but to, to go ourselves and then to see what God does through that. And so we're really excited about that. Um, how can you support this trip going this summer? Uh, we are running our second uh, Bolarama. We had such a great time last year as it funded a lot of our students going to our life conference. Um, so we rented out Forest View Lanes just right here up in Michigan. Uh, we have two different time slots on that Saturday morning, March 18th, for you to come and bowl to help support and raise funds. And so would you please consider coming out, grab some friends, grab your life group, grab your family, you rent a lane for two hours, you get the bowl away. It's awesome. We have prizes. It's a great time. And so I'd love for you to do that to help support us. And as well as if you run a business and you'd like to sponsor our event, ways to sign up, QR codes to scan, make it super easy. And so we'd love to invite you to join us in that, partner with us as we take our first trip of many uh, to Costa Rica. So with that, can I get you to stand up? And would you greet someone next to you? Oh. Steve's 40th birthday today. He had, yeah, there you go. There you go. He didn't know I was going to do it. I didn't do it in the first service. He didn't give me a chance to. But we're going to sing happy birthday oh to him my. real quick, okay? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. 
I should wave or something. Thank you. 40 years young today. Would you stand up and greet someone, uh, tell them your name and that you're happy they're here. Father, for bringing us here to worship you, Lord. I thank you for this awesome body of believers, Lord. I pray right now that we would fix our eyes upon you, or that we would fix our minds on you as we continue to worship and honor you this morning, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings
Before time began, God was there, amen? Before it all, he had a plan for you. He had a plan for me. He had a plan for each and every one of us. Isn't that amazing? That's our God. But before it all, he thought of you. Yeah, these words. Before you breathe creation, before you split the sea, before you brought down giants, your plan was laid for me. Before you walked on water, before you healed the blind, before you fed the masses, you were the bread of life. Sing it out. Before you breathe creation, before you split the sea, before you brought down giants, your plan was before it all. Before you walked on water, before you healed the blind, before you fed the masses. Before it all, he was there. He was there. We're going to do a new song today. Does that sound good to y'all? Yeah, we're going to worship with a new song. The Bible does sing to the Lord a new song. Um, But I want to read a scripture passage for you guys first. It's out of Romans 6, verses 5 through 11. And if at any point in this passage you agree with something that I'm reading, let out an amen. That's so we can acknowledge together that we are in agreement with one another. That's why we do that. That's why we do that. And plus, it gives us an opportunity to testify to those around us as well that this is truth. So Romans 6, verses 5 through 11. 
For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Amen. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Amen, that's right. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen. And all God's people said amen. Yes, that's right. And this new song, again, it is new, but it's real easy to pick up on. I want you guys to just focus on the words. Focus on God truly being greater than sin, being greater than death, being greater than all of the things that we are not greater than. Right? Amen? Please. 
grace that will pardon and cleanse within. I sing grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within grace grace God's grace grace that is greater than all our sin yes We thank you for your everlasting character. You're unchanging. You are our creator, sustainer, protector, redeemer, savior. And you'll always be. We thank you that you give to us so generously everything that you are. We pray that you'll help us to humble ourselves Help us to lay ourselves down before you and be obedient, not as a box to check or out of some kind of blind ambition, but because we desire to align ourselves to your purpose and your will. This morning, please be with your servant, Rob, and help us to hear a message from you through him. Turn our hearts to you. And as he speaks, please soften our hearts and let us grow closer to you. It's in your name we pray, amen. We're gonna continue our worship together with the time of offering. So if you're a regular attender here, there's buckets at the end of the pews you can pass. If you're a visitor, please just let that go by and just enjoy your time here together. church family how are you today good it is good to be together if you are uh, new here uh, let me just introduce myself my name is Rob Zimmerman. I'm the lead pastor here at Westgate and uh, I'm just thankful that you have chosen to worship with us today uh, hopefully as you walked in this morning you were able to uh, grab uh, the sermon notes that were out at the tables if you have those I'd encourage you to uh, pull them out and uh, you can use them to follow along this morning as well uh, if you've got uh, the church app Westgate app downloaded on your phone there's a handy dandy way to actually take the notes straight into the app, and so I'd encourage you to pull that out as well and uh, follow along with us this morning. Uh, as we have been uh, together over the last eight weeks, we've been going through a series together entitled Guardrails, looking at the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20. And one of the things that uh, I have loved about studying the Ten Commandments is just being able to get a deeper look and understanding about 
why they are there and the purpose that they serve in our lives. And uh, probably the thing that has stood out to me the most and that I hope will stand out to you as well is that the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus are not really meant to be a ladder for us to climb but really, truly a mirror for us to look in. Do you understand what I'm saying when I say that? Oftentimes, when we come to the Ten Commandments, we view them as some sort of ladder we need to climb in order to achieve uh, something, uh, to come to a level of achievement that is satisfactory to God. Maybe even an idea in our mind that somehow by adhering to the Ten Commandments that we will be good enough to God to get into the doors of heaven. You know, the Bible tells us one day we'll all stand there before Jesus at the gates of heaven, and if he were to look at you and say, hey, why should I let you in? Your response should not be, I was really good at the Ten Commandments. I figured those things out and I had them down pretty pat, right? Because if there's anything that we've learned, it's not a ladder to be climbed, but the Ten Commandments are really meant to be a mirror, a mirror that we look into to see ourselves correctly. The purpose that they are there for God's people in the Old Testament throughout the new and for us today is that we would have a clear picture of ourselves, And when we look into that mirror, often what we see is how often we fail. But the point in that is not to leave us in a place of desperation, maybe just a little bit, but so that it drives us to a place of realizing that we need a savior desperately and to point us to Jesus. And so when we study the Ten Commandments, I believe that one of the most important things we can do is to have a full perspective, to be able to step back and to look at the bigger picture of the Ten Commandments. And isn't this true for all of life? You know, when we encounter different situations or, uh, that we might be struggling with or trials or difficulties we go through, one of the things that we tend to do as we're trying to figure things out is that we mire ourselves down into the weeds, into the very minute details to try to figure something else out. But oftentimes one of the mistakes that we can make when we do that is, is that we get so buried into the weeds that we forget to take a step back and actually look at the larger picture so that we can have a true understanding and not miss the most important point. Uh, I want to give you a visual illustration of this this morning. I'm going to throw some pictures up on the screen. And what these pictures are going to do is they're going to zoom in onto an everyday object that you would be familiar with. And your job is to figure out as you zoom in really close to be able to figure out what that object is. First one might be a little bit easy for you, but here you go. I want to start off easy. This first one, take a look at it. Now, it's kind of an interesting looking thing. Uh, it's got like a heart on it, at least it appears to, but can you tell what this is? Okay, some of you would say an apple stem, maybe given away by some of the colors. So if you zoom out, it is most definitely the stem of an apple, okay? Good job, give yourself a point if you got that right. Next one, a little bit harder. Look at this thing. Now, I had knee surgery one time, and uh, I went and I watched that knee surgery, ACL reconstruction, and it looked a little something like this. It, it's a little gross. Can, can you tell what that is as you look at it? Maybe share with the person next to you. What do you think you're looking at? If you zoom out and look at the full picture, here's what you see. A baseball. How many people got that right? Anybody here? No one. All right. The thread going into the very hole of the baseball. Here's another one for you, one that is a little bit tricky. Take a close look. What are you looking at up close? What is that? Now, it looks like shag carpet, right? How many people would say carpet? Anybody here? When you zoom out, what is it? It's the pages of books zoomed in on. Isn't that crazy when you look at it? 
All right, last one again. This one uh, should be a little bit easy. Take a look at this one. What are we looking at here? Share with the person next to you. It's interesting. If you're feeling hungry this morning, zoom out and it is what? An Oreo. Oh, look at that. All right. You guys get the picture, right? You zoom in really close. You can look at all of the fine details, but if you don't take a step back, you're going to miss the bigger picture. The Ten Commandments are often, I believe that the Ten Commandments are this way as well. We need to not only stand, understand the most basic, the most fundamental teaching that comes through the commandment, right? Do not steal, do not murder, do not commit adultery. But we need to be able to take a step back to see that there is something much deeper that God wants us to understand as we look at this. Not just the explicit sin in the commandment, but also the heart issues that lead to the breaking of that specific commandment. But even more so, when we take that step back and we look at those commandments, it allows us to see the very character of God and to see how he wants to develop his character within us so that we would be a reflection of his image to the world. And so I want us to do that this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, we're going to take a look together this morning at the Eighth Commandment. Again, it is one that at face value seems like we should all be able to get it and to, to, to understand it and to practice it well. Four simple words in the English language, and it is this. You shall not steal. Now you look at me. You say, well, Pastor Rob, I feel like I've got this one down just like the last couple weeks. I feel like I've got this one down pretty pat. Well, most of America would agree with you on this. There was a Barna research study that was done uh, a couple years back, and it said that about 86% of Americans believe that they have completely satisfied God's requirement of abstaining from stealing. Okay, now that sounds pretty good. So you might sit here this morning and say, you know, this is a really good word for people that are thieves, for people that are robbers, but it doesn't have much to say to us good, ordinary Christians who don't do that sort of thing. I mean, what possibly could we learn from this commandment? And so this morning, what I want us to do is to begin by diving into the commandment itself. What was forbidden, you'll see this in your notes, what was forbidden in the Old Testament by the commandment to not steal? As we begin, the very first thing that we see is this, is that it, it, it uh, forbid the outright theft and robbery of personal property. Now, how many of you have ever had something stolen from you? Anybody here ever experienced that? Maybe somebody broke in, somebody took something from you. When I was a young boy, I mean, it's the worst feeling in the world. When I was young in junior high, I jumped on my bike one day and I, I took a ride uh, off to uh, the baseball card shop that was around the corner. It was about a mile and a half from my house, one of the busy intersections uh, in Long Beach. And as I got to the baseball card shop, I went inside and did what I typically did, spent about 30, 45 minutes just looking over all of these really awesome old, old school cool baseball cards, dreaming about the things that I wanted to have. But as I looked, one of the things that I began to realize is that I didn't have enough money in order to get the card that I wanted. And so, uh, you know, as I was looking and I was thinking about the fact that I didn't have the money, ultimately what did I do? I decided it was time to leave and as I turned around to walk outside of the door my bike was gone. 
completely gone. As a young junior, I began to panic as a young junior high boy. I, I literally began, I like looked inside. I began to run around all of the edges of the building, desperately searching. And I couldn't help but think to myself, if I find the person that's taking my bike, I'm going to meet out justice like you've never seen, right? Little junior high boy, uh, meet out justice like you've never seen before because it was so offensive. Who could do something like that? What I find that's interesting is that the Bible actually talks about this idea of theft and robbery in the same terms, that there was a meeting out of justice that would take place for someone who stole. In Exodus chapter 22, verses 1 through 4, I'm going to read it to you. Uh, You can write it down in your notes. This is what it said. It said, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for one ox and four sheep for one sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guilt for him. So if you go in, you're stealing from somebody, they find you, they get to kill you, and it's totally chill. Next, it says, he shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So if you didn't get killed, you could be taken and sold because of what you did. And then it says, if a stolen beast is found alive in his possession, he shall pay double. It was a serious offense. And that there were rules that were set up as a theft. Now, let me ask this question. How many of you have ever stolen something from somebody? Anybody here? Anybody here have an active habit or issue with stealing? Nobody's going to raise their hand. (laughs) Uh, Just like I thought, right? We like to think that we don't. But I'm not just talking this morning about robbing a bank or shoplifting from a store. We are talking about those things. But we very easily actually steal from others all the time. It's not just taking a cookie from the cookie jar when mom says no. Sometimes it's not returning items that we've borrowed from another person because they've forgotten and they're useful to us. Sometimes it's taking office supplies from the office. I hear a couple giggles of guilty people in the room. Did you know that statistics show 75% of employees help themselves to office supplies on a regular basis as well? It can be the stealing of ideas from others and taking credit for it. Taking the hotel amenities, which is so easy to do because it's not like stealing from a person. It's an organization that has plenty, so we should just help ourselves, right? Uh, It can be borrowing money from a family member when they aren't looking. Uh, It could be not correcting clerks when they have undercharged us. It can be the pirating of music, which over the last many, many years has been a huge issue. Statistics show that 20% of Americans have actually stolen music that they didn't pay for. That equates to about 57 million different Americans. As well, the pirating of TV and movies. This is a huge issue. They say that 20% of revenue is lost for, because of movie piracy. Now, I want you to think about this as well. This is just kind of an inter- interesting anecdote as we think about the different ways people can steal Uh, Anybody here know what the most pirated movie in 2004 was? 2004 had a lot of great movies that came out, okay? You might think of uh, something like Harry Potter. You might think of Shrek 2, the movie Anchorman, National Treasure. What was the most pirated movie? The Passion of the Christ. No joke. My hope is that as people stole that, that they learned something about Jesus and their life was transformed, right? Isn't it crazy? Think about it. What was forbidden in the Old Testament? Outright theft and robbery of personal property. And when we really dig into it, we can see that there are ways that we ourselves have participated in that. What else was outlawed? 
Second thing, the unlawful taking of people. Hopefully you haven't done this recently, but Exodus 21, verse 16, it says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. It was a very serious offense in the same way that it is in our culture today. What it forbid was the unlawful forced enslavement of another person. Now, when we read in the Bible, we read of places where people could put themselves into indentured servanthood, which was different, but there was a forbidden uh, unlawful forced enslavement of another person. It reminds us and it outlaws the type of slavery that we have seen in our country's history and throughout the world throughout the centuries, even still happening in some places today. It outlawed what we see in our world today, especially even in this community, uh, the depth of evil we see in our culture when it comes to sex trafficking, where often young people are forcibly taken and their lives destroyed by some of the most despicable human beings that inhabit our world. One of the things that this commandment did was it said that you could not, you unlawfully take people. A third thing was this, was that you couldn't cheat people of wealth via deception. In Leviticus chapter 6, verses 2 through 5, it said this, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, in any in any of all of these things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it. Again, if you deceive people in order to gain wealth for yourself, there were major consequences to that. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. It draws to our minds the picture and images of tax collectors in Jesus's day who would take and they would use the different weights on the scales and kind of manipulate them in order to rip people off. Now we may think to ourselves, I don't do that. I don't, I don't do dishonest things in order to gain wealth off of other people. Like I don't have a scale and different weights that I'm using, but I want you to think about how this applies to our day today. It can be cheating on our taxes. It can be adding hours to our time cards. It can be not going to, into work on time because you won't get caught and you need that extra little bit of sleep. It can be slacking off at work and wasting excessive time by doom scrolling through social media. Did you know that recent studies actually show that the average worker that works 40 hours a week wastes eight to 10 hours of company time uh, just because they're, they're either hanging out or fooling around at the, uh, at the water cooler or sitting on the internet scrolling through social media. The US Department of uh, Commerce has actually gone through and figured out that annually over $50 billion is quote, stolen from companies from wasted time. It can be other things like charging personal items to a company card. It can be wearing items of clothing clothing one time with the intention of returning it to the store uh, to get your own money back. It could be the selling of something for a higher price than its real value, even though it is hidden and damaged. There are so many different ways that we can cheat people of wealth based on deception in our culture. Maybe as I go through some of these, you think, okay, okay, Rob, maybe there's a few things that I've done. But one that I think strikes to the very heart of the church and that was made very clear in Scripture is that one of the things the Bible was talking about when it forbids stealing was it talked often about withholding for ourselves what is God's. And there are a lot of ways that we can do this. There are many ways in our culture today. Oftentimes in the church, we talk about withholding our time 
that rather than taking what God has given us and the time that we have within our lives to go and to serve him and to be actively involved uh, in his kingdom work, oftentimes we fill our lives with so many other things, things that have nothing to do with God, things that just we think bring us the fulfillment that we're longing for and seeking and what we actually do is rob God of the things that he wants to do in us and through us. Not just our time, but our talent. And that idea of time flows into talent because the Bible tells us that God has gifted every single one of us with very specific gifts. And at different times, different gifts throughout our lifetime that he has given us so that we could use it for the building up of the church, for sharing the gospel, that other people would know him. And yet we fill up our lives so much that oftentimes we neglect the gifts, not even looking to understand what gifts God has given us to be used for his glory and for his purposes. But the one that we often talk about as well in the church and that I know you're expecting me to say after I talk about time and talent is also our treasure, the resources that God has given us. And in the Old Testament, God spoke specifically to his people about this. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, which I'll read in just a second, the, uh, the God's people, the Israelites, if you remember, they had been exiled out of their country because of their refusal to follow God and his ways. And then after having been in exile for a long time, the Bible tells us that God allowed them to come back. They began to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, the walls of the city of Jerusalem. But as time continued on, they began to walk away from God again. They began to get themselves involved in all sorts of sin, but to ignore what God desired for their lives. And he sent prophets to speak into that. And in Malachi chapter three, verse eight, it says this. Malachi says to the people of Israel, will man rob God? Are you ro yet you are robbing me. You say, how have we robbed you, Lord? And he responds in your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. What the prophet Malachi warned the people of Judah of was that by holding back their tithes, by holding back what God had asked them to bring as an offering because he had provided for them, is that they were actually stealing from the Lord. If you look at surveys in our culture today, conducted by Barna Research just in 2022, last year, it shows that 20%, only 20% of self-identified born-again Christians actually tithe on a regular basis. The study showed that 17% in the church give less and different each year based on what their personal needs are and then giving what they have left over. 37% just give sporadically and 25% give nothing at all. Now, I want to confess right here up front, I know that this is a touchy subject. Some of you hearing me say this are already checking out, and I, I can feel it. I know how it happens in the church. You're saying, here we go again. The pastor is talking about money. And I want to tell you something. On one hand, I don't blame you. I don't blame you because in our world, in our culture, and in the church for years and centuries, there have been pastors and churches that have misused their responsibility to steward God's, the resources that God has given them well. Not only that, but many pastors will use manipulative techniques in order to try to gain things from people, especially for their own personal benefit. I can't blame you. But on the other hand, it's an essential part of our discipleship as followers of Jesus Christ. And if God says very clearly that when we withhold that from him, that literally we are stealing from God, then it tells me that there is something essential that God desires to do in me and through me when I am submissive to this area of my life to him. 
And I want you to know that the statistics that I shared with you from the Barna Research Group have real world consequences. Can I, can I be honest with you for a moment? Can I peel back the curtain just a bit and share something very personal with you? You know, if I can lay aside just being your pastor for a minute and share with you as an individual who is responsible for leading God's church, I feel the weight of this constantly. This last year, and I shared this at our annual meeting uh, at the luncheon uh, just a few weeks ago, but this last year was probably one of the most difficult years that I have walked through as a pastor, not just as a youth pastor, but also as a lead pastor, feeling the weight and the burden of leading a church out of a season like COVID, which upset everything in our lives, but also within our churches. Seeing people leave, watching the finances go down and struggle. And just as an individual, the weight that I feel to not fail, the weight that I feel to keep the church afloat and to keep the church moving forward is a heavy burden that not only I carry, but many pastors carry. And I found myself over the last year worrying constantly, looking at our finances, seeing month after month that things weren't coming in. It wasn't just COVID, it was high inflation. I know that everybody feels the effects. And yet, as we came to the end of December, I can remember that about two to three weeks into December, there was a large gap and we were really short. And I remember as I left to go out of town, the burden sat on my shoulders of what is going to happen. Now, the beauty is, is that when I came back, God had provided as he always does. He reminded me of his consistent faithfulness. Many of you gave so sacrificially. We ended the year in the positive that was great, but I still carry the burden that if we as God's people don't take seriously the call that he has given us to be stewards of what he has given, to give back to him, as a tithe, as an act of worship, that it's gonna have real impact on the church. I went to a conference with my wife a couple uh, weeks ago where we gathered together with a lot of uh, 75 pastors and their wives from the Christian Missionary Alliance of large churches. It was for a conference where we network together and we talk about issues that are facing us and our churches. And can I tell you that to a T, every single pastor that was there said the same thing. It's been a hard year. We're trying to figure out where we are, but we're also trying to figure out whether or not we're gonna stay afloat. Every single one said giving is substantially down. We've lost people. Some churches lost up to a million and a half dollars of their annual budget. And most churches were trying to figure out how, how many people they were going to have to cut out of their staffs. And as we sat there, the common thread that was being talked about was this. We feel the great burden of discipling God's church in the area of giving. And yet we know that when we do so, people are gonna look at us as though we're trying to be manipulative or we're simply trying to guilt people into doing something that they don't want to do. But if we don't, the older generations in the church today understood this discipline, this act of worship of giving and the younger generation, largely when you look at the statistics, has not learned that. 
And if statistics continue to follow in the next five to 10 years, if the trends continue, the church at large in America is going to be in a very desperate situation. We must be willing as followers of Christ to understand what he teaches about how we take what he has given to us, recognizing that we're not the owners of what we have. God is the owner, but he has asked us to steward it, but not just to steward it, but to put him first, not to give him the leftovers, but the Bible talks about giving him first fruits as an act of worship to continue to push forward the ministry of the church and the spread of the gospel. And I want you to know that as your pastor, when I talk about this, I feel the weight every single time. And from the bottom of my heart, from the core of who I am just as an individual, I don't want you to give to Westgate out of compulsion. I want you to grow in your love for the Lord, your understanding of how he has given this to you as a way to worship him and to put him first in every area of your life. It's something that I have learned over the course of my life, oftentimes the hard way. What I want is for people to give to Westgate Chapel or to the work of the Lord because they're moving to deeper places of surrender with God and realizing the joy that comes when we participate in the mobilizing and launching of gospel ministry. Giving of our resources to God is an essential aspect of our discipleship. And we must see that the heart of God is that we would see all that he has given us and that see that it is his that we're not the owners of our wealth, but the stewards, and that we would understand this truth. When we don't give what is left over, but we give back our first fruits of what he has given us, it is an act of worship. And this has been God's desire for his people all throughout scripture, that they would give from what he has blessed them with as an act of worship for an impact of the gospel, that it would be propelled forward. All of these things, What is forbidden by the Old Testament commandment to not steal? Theft and robbery of personal property, unlawful taking of people, cheating people of wealth via deception, withholding for ourselves what is God's. But hear this. As with the other commandments, this commandment also revealed deeper issues of the heart. And this is where I want us this morning to zoom out. We've taken the very close look at the commandment to not steal itself, but I want us to zoom out and take a bigger a look at the bigger picture. What are the sins of the heart that lead to the breaking of this commandment? But even more, as we understand this commandment, what attributes of God's character do we see visibly that he wants to develop within us? So as we continue, I want you to turn your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 10, Verse 17, I want us to take a look at an encounter that takes place between Jesus and a young man. The encounter that takes place will actually inform our understanding of the heart issues behind the commandment that we have looked at this morning. In Mark chapter 10, verse 17, it begins this way. It says, and he, as he, speaking of Jesus, as he was setting out on his journey, A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I don't know about you, but wouldn't that be great if all evangelism was that easy? I mean, seriously, 
The young man's question, fill in the blank, is the stuff that we dream of. It's the type of thing that we long for. Oh, wouldn't it be great if every time somebody wanted to, we, we were going to share our faith, that somebody would come up to us and ask us this question. It would do away with the fear that we have of having to worry about whether or not we'll offend somebody or if we'll lose a relationship with another person or maybe we'll say something, you know, we'll, we don't know how to start this conversation because it feels so awkward. I mean, wouldn't it be best if it always worked this way? Like when I went to Mongolia this last summer and I'm sitting on the plane and the guy across from me finds out I'm a pastor and he just boldly says, I don't believe in God. And then he tells me, I don't believe in God because, you know, all the evil that's in the world, how could there be a, a God in this world if all of this evil is running rampant? And what are the next words he says? I mean, what do you think about that? And I'm like, thank you, Lord. Hand me one. Easy, right? Take it and run. It would be great if it all worked that way. But even in those moments, it can be difficult. And we see that in this story as well. Because the young man's question, while it is the stuff we dream of, what it revealed was his own lack of understanding. Look at the question that he asks. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, what must I do? His, his question is sincere. I want you to see that. I believe that when we read this passage, and you'll see it in numerous different ways, that this young man desires salvation. One of the great things it reveals is that he, he does believe in life after death. And what he's asking about is eternal life. But what he believes is that there's something he must do in order to be entitled to it. Fill in the blank. The young man believed that behavior was the ultimate requirement of religion. And no doubt he picked this up from the religious leaders of the day, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They would teach that the most important thing you could do to earn favor with God, to climb the ladder to heaven, was to adhere to the law and to follow it perfectly. No doubt this young man knew the Ten Commandments in his own mind, in his own heart, and he sees this picture that there's something I must do in order to inherit or receive or be good enough for eternal life. I want to tell you just as a side note this morning, as much as we say that that was an issue in the Bible in those days, it is just as much a danger of modern Christianity today. We must come to a place of understanding that the law is not present for us to climb a ladder so that we can be good enough for God. It is not here to follow just a set of rules. It is there to help us to see ourselves, to step back and see the bigger picture, to look in the mirror and in order to make his point, what Jesus does, suspecting that the young man clearly knows and is aware of the Ten Commandments, he references the second half of them in his reply. In verses 18 through 19 of Mark 10, it says, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. You know, as Jesus goes through this, he lists all of those commandments. And, and the guy has got to be sitting there going like, murder, honor your father and mother, stealing, right? Running through these things. And what do we see? At first glance, his report card back to Jesus looks stellar. It looks incredible. In Mark chapter 10, verse 20, it says, he said to him, teacher, 
All these I have kept from my youth. I've done it. Now, I don't know about you, but I love celebrating a good report card. If my kids bring home straight A's or good grades, I'm like, let's go. Let's kill the fattened calf. Let's go out to dinner. Let's do something great. Why? Because nobody ever said that to me when I was young because I don't think I ever brought home that good report card. But... When they do that, I want to celebrate this is good. And this guy has got to be ecstatic. He's like sitting here going, I've not killed anybody. I'm not cheating on my wife. I don't think I've been stealing. I, I haven't been bearing false witness. I've been honoring my father and mother, making sure that they're taken care of. I'm in. I've mastered the law. But then Jesus expands this young man's understanding by doing what? Asking him to take the step back and to look at it from a different angle. Mark 10, chapter 21, it says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Now, pause there for me. I just I have to say something about this. It's easy for us to look at this rich young ruler and think to ourselves, like he's like the religious leaders and all these people that bring questions, like he's trying to trick Jesus. He's trying to do something. This phrase here alone betrays that idea. It says that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. This man's question was serious. He wanted eternal life. He was striving to honor God. Jesus looks at him and loves him, but then he says, this is good, but you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Wow. What does Jesus do? He moves past the surface. He knew that this young man had great wealth. And what he does is he asks this young man if he would be willing to give up everything to follow him. What Jesus does is he asks the young man to zoom out and see the bigger picture. He's asking not just for him to follow the law, but to come follow me. You're being invited in to be one of my disciples, to live the way that we live, to leave everything else behind, and I have something incredible for you. Can you feel the tension that's building? You see, the answer to the question here is, Jesus is looking at this young man saying, do you trust me enough to follow at any cost? What does Jesus' response reveal? In the same way that sin is an issue of the heart, Faith is also an issue of the heart, not of the hands. There is no amount of doing that you can do that can overcome your sin. Only faith in Jesus, a willingness to leave everything behind and follow him is what can do that. And the tension builds as this young man, Jesus gives this young man the answer back and says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. The tension begins to build. Is this young man willing to untie himself from the things of this world, believing that what Jesus offers is better? We wait in anticipation of the response. What happens? Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. What does the young man's response reveal? That the greatest enemies of faith are greed and self-satisfaction. 
truly two core sins that run not just to the very core of the eighth commandment to not steal, but to the very core of what separates us from God. Greed and self-satisfaction, a desire for something more, a desire to provide it on our own, things that were present in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and that are present in our lives today that hold us back from all that God desires, greed and self-satisfaction. And this young man, because he had all the wealth of the world and it felt good, walked away sorrowful because the cost seemed really high. These sin issues that lay at the core of the Eighth Commandment are in direct opposition to the revealed character of God, though, that we are to bear to the world. In other words... Why is it that stealing is wrong? Because it violates the very character of God. When we steal, we take for ourselves. We are the primary focus. What it shows is that we value self, whether it's stealing from people or stealing from God. What we show is that we value ourselves more than anything else. But what is the character of God that is revealed in this that he desires to be manifest in our life so that the world would see and know him? Number one, that godly character trait is love. That rather than being self-focused, that we would be focused on loving other people. How is this defined? In the Bible, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, listen to these words and let them wash over you. It tells us in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. The Bible tells us that God is love, that he has demonstrated the depth of his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that God has done everything and given everything, not thinking what he could keep for himself, but what he could give so that we could experience his love and be drawn to him. It is a beautiful gift that God has given us, but what does the end of this verse say in verse 11? It says, beloved, if God has so loved us, then we ought to love one another. That the outflow of what Christ has done for us is to share that same love with other people, not just to tell people about Jesus loving them, but they would experience his love through the way that we love them and put them first, valuing others more than ourselves. What does Romans 13, eight through nine say? Paul says, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That first character trait that we see is one of love, that God wants to be reflected to the world. But the second one is his generosity. And in his love, God has shown us his incredible generosity. Listen to these words of Paul in Ephesians chapter one, verses three through nine. Again, let it wash over you. Experience the fullness of God's generosity towards you. 
Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavishly, that he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. God has been so good and so generous to us where we deserve nothing from him because of our sin. He has given us the depths of the riches of heaven through Jesus Christ's death on a cross, that we could experience the fullness in this life of all that God has for us, but also in the life to come. And so what is it that God desires that we would show that generosity to others? How does Paul say this in Ephesians chapter four, verse 28? He says, let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. The character that God wants us to have is to love others and put them before ourselves in such a way that we would live generous lives, looking for how we can care for and build up one another. But the bottom line question this morning is very simple. It's the question that ultimately the rich young ruler had to wrestle with himself. And it's here on the screen. The bottom line is this, am I willing to trust God in faith and fully surrender all of who I am to him? For the rich young ruler, he was so tied to his earthly possessions, wrestling with greed and self-satisfaction that he walked away and said, it's too much. My question for us this morning as we look at this commandment together is, have you come to a place in your own life where you would say, God, because of all that you have done for me, because of how faithful you've been, I'll give you everything. I will serve you at any cost. Not because I'm climbing a ladder, because I recognize the depth of my need for you and the endless riches of your grace that have been poured out for me and my desire to bring glory to you by surrendering all of who I am. Would you pray with me? God, would you bring us today to that place of complete surrender? There are many things in this world that we want to hold on to. As we think about this commandment to not steal, there may be ways in which we identify this morning, Lord, that we have been stealing from others that don't, doesn't please you. There's no doubt that each of us can look at ourselves and recognize that there are ways, God, that we have stolen from you. But Lord, as well, I pray that you would help us to see that as we step back just even from that commandment, 
that there's something deeper that you want us to experience and that you want us to see that this transformation that we desire isn't just about working harder to not steal, but it's about having our hearts transformed. It's about yielding all of who we are to you so that your spirit can change us. Then by which through your power, we live out your character in the world so that other people can see and know you. God, I pray that you would do that work in us and that you would bring us to that place of humility where we are willing to let go and to trust you and to follow you no matter what the cost. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of Thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee.
Watching in the news, you have probably seen reports of what's happening down south in Kentucky. At Asbury University, they're talking about a revival that is taking place uh, in the school, but also that is spreading to other universities. And can I be honest with you, when I first heard the reports, 11 days have been was incredibly skeptical. Skeptical because as I looked at the reports, like I've seen time and time again in our culture how we try to just contrive things and build them up through entertainment value or we try to create a buzz. The church is really good at trying to orchestrate and make something happen. And that sometimes gets to the cynic in me. But I talked with a very good friend of mine who was at that conference I was talking about. His name is Paul Smith, and he's a pastor of one of our Alliance churches in Lexington, Kentucky. And as uh, we talked about what is happening down there, he said, Rob, it's a move of God's spirit like I've never seen in my life. People are confessing sin. They're being broken free from bondage and chains that they have been in for years. People are experiencing physical healing and God's power is moving as people are surrendering their hearts to the Lord. And I want you to know, man, I have longed for a day to see that happen. A day where even here at Westgate Chapel, where God's spirit would be able to move so freely that it would move us to that place where revival could break out. But can I, can I tell you something that I've observed? Revival doesn't happen because we create the moment. Revival happens because God's people as individuals see themselves for who they are. They see God for who he is. And they are so drawn by his love and their desperation for a savior that it moves them to a place of confession of sin and repentance and a desire to surrender all of who they are to him. That is what revival is. But it begins in individual solitary hearts. As we go through this series together, my hope is that what you see is that God is calling us as his people to a place of seeing ourselves for who we are, but not going on like it's just another day but moving to a place of when we see our failure, that we move to a place of repentance and surrender and offering all of who we are to him. I'm praying for that to happen in this church. And I hope that you will pray with me that God's spirit will move so powerfully that we become a people that are fully surrendered in him in such a way that it would spill out of these walls and impact our community for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so church, I pray that you would pray with me. And this morning, our prayer team would love the opportunity to pray with you. If God is speaking to you this morning, whether it's our topic this morning of how we steal, 
or of any of the other topics that we've worked through, if God has been speaking to you, respond to him this morning. If he's calling you to repentance, allow yourself to go there with him. But our team would love that opportunity to pray with you this morning. As we close, I'd invite you to come and to use the altar here as a time to pray and to get right with God, but allow his spirit to move and to transform your heart. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. Our deepest desire, Lord, is to grow deeper in our knowledge of who you are. But as well, Father, to separate ourselves from this world, which so easily entangles us. God, I pray that as we study your word and we understand it in a deeper way, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would move us to places of surrender, of being willing to let go of the things of this world so that you, God, can have all of us that you would be able to use our lives to impact the lives of countless of other people so that they would know your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we submit ourselves to you this week. We submit ourselves to you today. Use us, Father. But I pray, God, that the work of revival would begin in each of us, myself included, in our leadership, and our staff, that you would bring us to a place of yielding all of who we are to you that your spirit then could move powerfully so that you and you alone will be glorified. We love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you, church. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We look forward to seeing you this next week.